Good morning to you all. So happy you're here at Heart City Church on this Palm Sunday. I saw in the back room there the my wife had provided some palm branches for the children. Um, I'm not sure if budget cuts or a run on palms uh, was in order today. Uh, prevent us big kids from getting those. Uh, so I guess if you're uh, feeling moved by the Spirit and want to yell Hosanna, you're going to have to wave your bulletins around this morning, okay? Uh, but then again, perhaps our lack of palms is because unlike previous Palm Sundays here at Heart City, we're not actually going into Jesus' triumphal narrative. That's not what I'm preaching this morning. We've actually been walking through the passion of Luke. And we come today to Luke chapter 23. Um, I invite you to turn there, verses 44 to 56. It's also printed nicely in the middle of your bulletin. I invite you to turn there. Uh, this text brings us not to the triumphal entry, Jesus' entrance five days earlier to cheers, but rather to Jesus' death and his burial. Friends, we're about to read the darkest scene in all the Bible, in all human history. I actually found it fitting in light of recent events that have actually impacted our congregation. We spoke about Confex, our brother in Malawi, and the church there impacted by Cyclone Freddy. Last week, a tornado hit Rolling Fork, Mississippi, flattened the town, and a town where Mary Ann's father has ministered to the folks there. And last week, Nashville's massacre of an elementary school in our own denomination. That was a PCA elementary. Yesterday, they laid to rest the body of Holly Scruggs, nine-year-old daughter of my fellow PCA pastor, Reverend Chad, and his wife, Jada. Today, at 2.30, they're going to bury nine-year-old William Kinney, a boy described as unfailingly kind and a stranger to no one. And four other beloved saints are or have been laid to rest. Let me ask you, what is our hope in a world where even children in school get slaughtered? Our hope is only found here, in the preached word of God. And I'm so glad you're here this morning. You are in the only place on this dying planet where you will find hope. Here we take in our hands, week after week, God's heavenly communication to planet Earth, to us. And the Bible informs its readers that we have a Father who loved us in all our misery and sin and sent his Son to our Earth on the greatest rescue mission in all of human history. Jesus came to face darkness and death to secure salvation for lost people and to usher in a brand new creation that is greater than you would ever dare to dream of. Welcome to Luke 23, where that begins. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, 
he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had, saw, had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that you will illumine our hearts, show us wonderful things from your word, that we might be changed, and that we might love you more and better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am so glad that you have joined us today. It actually grieves me when I see so many people don't come to church. Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann, he spoke of the glory of the worship service, saying that it is only here in the worship service that we can actually leave the world and its headlines behind for a while. Here, we actually experience heaven's glory, and then we can actually leave out of this place shining our lives, written letters of hope in a world of death, and darkness. And this text actually from the get-go invites us to leave this earth and its headlines behind. Let's look again at verses 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So if you like headings for your bulletin or for your notes, let's go with a supernatural doings. Supernatural doings, the blackout and the curtain tearing. It's actually now, according to Luke, about the sixth hour, that would be noon. Three hours after Jesus and those two thieves were crucified, as we saw last week. And Luke, do you remember, he went into great detail talking about the cruelty of those who were spectators here. I'll be honest, as I thought about this, I imagine high fives with every hammer blow on Jesus' body as they nailed him, fixed him to that cross. We read, it was awful. The Jewish leaders were mocking Jesus. Ah, Jesus, he saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Then the Roman soldiers joined in. And even the criminals on the cross were railing at him. All of this in front of this huge crowd. Do you think that this was the top news of the day? How many Jerusalem journalists were there, you know, catching the story, coming up with catchy headlines? Jesus, joke of Jerusalem. Ah, the nobody from Nazareth who tried to be a somebody. Another savior scam. How about Messiah movement melts, disciples disperse. Or how about this one? Crowd collects, 
for Christ's canceling. Here at Skull Hill, a large crowd gathered to witness today the end of the Jesus movement. Only days ago, cheering crowds were worked up as Jesus rode in like a king. Many children will doubtless be disappointed tonight. Others thinking the kingdom of God had arrived, uh, they will be reevaluating their beliefs. In short order, this latest imposter was arrested, tried, and crucified. His band of disciples have gone into hiding. It is now noon. It's only a matter of hours before the capital returned to normal life under the occupation. And then quite literally all the pens and pads of paper drop. As the noonday sun ceases to shine and all the world becomes pitch black for three hours. You know, it's about noon right now. What would you be thinking if suddenly we found ourselves in total darkness? The blackout and the curtain tear, they reveal that the Father and the Son are the only actors on stage right now. They show us that actually there's a greater reality beyond this earthly plane that we see here in front of us. And I find it telling that no one leaves this scene. They all stand here in darkness for three hours. A crowd frozen, perhaps connecting this supernatural event to the man on the cross. You know, Jesus just promised judgment in the temple just a day or two before this. He told them of signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Read Luke 21, verse 25 on. How many of you think are just petrified at this point? Their knees are knocking, thinking, oh no, it's all over. We don't know what we've just done. Yeah, all the earthly presses would have stopped. But not so much, I think, topside. I actually want us to think about that. The spotlight on the earthly actors goes out, but not on what God is doing. That's what Luke's inviting us into. I think some sanctified speculation about the supernatural doings going on for the next three hours when God presses pause on the sun. And doesn't Peter say that the angels are really on their tiptoes trying to peer into the mysteries of what God's doing here on planet Earth? What would they be thinking when they saw the Father blot out the Son? What would be the developing story if there was a heavenly herald topside? I think the angels would be thinking, ah, this is a sequel to the Egypt event, to plague number nine. Remember hard-hearted Pharaoh who wouldn't let the Israelites go and each plague got progressively worse and then you get to plague number nine and total darkness? And they would also remember what came next, number 10, the final plague, when God actually nodded to their buddy, the angel of death, and he flew off to kill every firstborn in all of Egypt, sparing only the Israelites who had smeared blood on their wooden doorposts. Just so happens that Jerusalem right now is commemorating that holiday, Passover. Even as with hard hearts, They've just given their nod to the Roman death squad to kill God's firstborn son. What do you think the angels are thinking? Make no mistake, mankind's worst sin ever was massacring their maker. If I'm an angel reporter up there and writing for the Heavenly Herald, here's my headline. Sun dying, sun darkened, soon destruction. And judgment is right. But here's the surprising good news for you and me, my friends. 
if there's ever a moment for God just to say, I'm done with this and to fry our planet and all of us, this is it. But no, that wasn't the plan. That's why actually the son who became our high priest on that cross cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So instead, the father turns out the lights and pours his judgment for our sins on his own son. This is mystery, my friends. Do you think the angels started to piece it together? Consider heaven's perspective. The father had always looked at his son with perfect love from all of eternity. The angels have never seen anything different. The father always looking upon his beloved son with perfect love and affection. The son gazing upon his father's face with perfect love and affection, never not looking, never not loving. All of history until now. What were the angels thinking as they witnessed suddenly a shadow go across the son, the son of God's love? More, the temple curtain. By the way, this is about 60 feet tall, according to Josephus, and four inches thick, and suddenly, shrap, right down the middle. Think about it. Behind this curtain is the one place the angels knew God dwelled on earth. And in the Bible, isn't it seen as a great someone experiencing great grief, they would rip their garments. Do the angels see the father ripping his temple garb as he grieves over his beloved son? I have a few questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. There's a mystery here. But we know the result of the tearing. Hebrews 10, we just read it earlier, Dave did. The temple curtain was a barrier separating holy God from sinners like us. And the ripping is actually God opening the way for you and I. And the sun goes dark as the sun is forsaken so that sinners can be forgiven. And now you and I, praise be to God, we can boldly go before God's throne of grace, knowing we're loved and accepted. We're his children. The angels witness this mystery of God's love. My question for you is, do you believe in the mystery? You know, as one person said, mystery is not the absence of meaning. It's rather the, me the presence of more meaning than we can possibly comprehend. That's what mystery is. And if you confess your sins, turn in faith to Jesus and trust the Savior to be greater than your worst sin, you are then forgiven, you are spared God's judgment. And the amazing thing is you can go to Holy God and say, Father, Father. Friends, that is what this Bible teaches. I know some of you may be in a dark time in your life right now. But doesn't the Bible comfort us again and again and again that it is actually in the darkness that God brings light and life. That's why I named this sermon that. The Bible actually begins that way. Dave mentioned it this morning. How does the Bible start? Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Darkness, chaos, darkness over the face of the deep. And God speaks in the darkness and says, let there be light and then life. And it's all good, very good. So let's move on to our next verse. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, we haven't left the supernatural yet as we see the Son actually addressing his heavenly Father. 
You know, this scene is only the third time in all of Luke's gospel. We've been in it for years and years, right? <laughs> only the third time we get to actually peek into a conversation where the only begotten son actually addresses his father. And it's his last words from the cross. And he commits his spirit to his father. Joel, what does that mean? What that means is that sin has actually now been dealt with. All our sin, praise be to God. And there's only one enemy left for us. Jesus conquered the devil in the wilderness. He conquered our sin on the cross. And there's only one enemy left that we and I have to fear. Death. Thank you, Mike. All that is left now is for Jesus to commit his human nature, not his divine, his human nature, his body and his soul to his father. But not just his soul. Friends, the good news is, beloved, he's committing your soul as well because we're in Christ. He's committing your soul into his father's hands. And no one, that's the good news, no one can ever snatch you out of the father's hands. Isn't that a good place to be? There's a word of hope that you can take home with you out in that world today. I googled the Nashville headlines. That's what I googled the other day. Here's what I found. Worry after Monday massacre. Here's another one. I'm afraid I'm going to die. 911 calls released. How about this one? Save our children. Tennessee protesters demand gun control. I actually read these and other articles. Here's what I found. Fear, rage, anger, terror, sorrow, protest, outrage, confusion, helplessness, hopelessness. That's what was missing. I didn't find anything that suggested hope until, from any of those secular news outlets, until I found this. This one sentence statement from Pastor Scruggs to reporters. He said this, through tears, we trust, speaking of his daughter Holly, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will one day raise her to life again. Isn't that an amazing message of hope that our world needs to hear? And did you hear how I described it? This just caught me. In the arms of Jesus. Here is a father who remembers what it is like to hold that little girl he loved in his arms. And she's only nine years old. <laughs> she might have fallen asleep last Sunday evening coming home from worship. He might have still gone and picked her up out of the car, took her in his arms, you know what happens? A kid kind of opens her eyes a little bit. Oh, it's my dad. He's got me. She went right back to sleep. Found herself in the room the next morning. That is what this father, with tears streaming down his face, knows to be true. He has taken this little life, this little daughter he loves, and he has placed her in the arms of Jesus. She's going to be okay. Pastor Scruggs actually knows our catechism. What are the benefits of being a believer after death? The souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Friends and families, right now in Nashville, can rejoice that the souls of these six believers are now with Jesus in his arms and their little nine-year-old bodies 
which rest in cold graves, are still united to Christ. It's actually why nine-year-old William Kinney's funeral today will end with a committal. Christian funerals have committals where we commit the body of our beloved to God, knowing that our Heavenly Father will never lose track of where this dear one is buried. This is a heavy sermon, but it's been a heavy week. I know I've given us a lot to think about here, but I want us to take a little application from Jesus' dying words on the cross, some imitation of him. Jesus' final words, think about this. His final words before he dies were him praying scripture. Psalm 31, 4. In the darkness... He saw God's word as a lamp unto his feet, a light unto his path. Here he is in great agony. He's all alone. But he has God's word, and he has it at the ready. And as we go out into a dark world, I want us to imitate Jesus. So let's review our memory verse. You'll see at the bottom of your sermon text page, your bulletin. Let's all once again recite, and if you've got it memorized, extra points for you. I have no candy for you after the service, though. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's all say it together and let's continue to work on this verse. It'll change next week after the resurrection. Let's say it together. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus was God, but he was fully human too, and that means he had to learn scripture. You see, the Bible wasn't downloaded into Jesus' memory. <laughs> he had to learn it. And we can see that it trusted, it guided him. Knowing God's word guided him all the way to glory. So I want to encourage us to continue to do that. And also think about this. Having it at the ready, it might be used to illumine a neighbor's heart, as we see in our very next text. And having said this, he breathed his last, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. <clears throat> and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So we've just returned to earth now, planet earth, as the spectators are experiencing our second point, a shocking death, a shocking death. So shocking, in fact, it leaves a Gentile soldier praising God and giving testimony. Isn't that amazing? Here's a guy who's seen some things, by the way. Think about it. He's a centurion. That means he's a commander of Romans, like a thousand. But he goes home this evening, and he's like telling his wife as he shakes his head, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, I've crucified countless men, seen all the ways one person can die. Go out with a whimper at best. But there was a total blackout. And then the man on the cross cried out with a loud, triumphant cry like he's a champion. And then he calls it a day. You see, a cloud cry makes no sense to our Roman friend. Because the cross killed you by asphyxiation. This guy watched men struggle to get air until they couldn't, often drowning in their own blood. But Jesus, my friends, is no mere man. He gives a triumphant cry, a loud voice, like he's just won a race. And then he breathes his last. And Luke is using the language to show us that Jesus 
actively died. What do you mean, Joel? Well, for you and I, death is a passive thing. Death steals us away, despite all our protests. I've seen this recently. Some people, they don't want to die, and they can't stop it. Death takes a hold of them, and they're gone. But death had no power over Jesus. Why? He never sinned. He never sinned. So what we see here is Jesus is willingly going under the power of death in order to defeat death. And this is what the centurion saw on some level. And this gets me excited, this centurion right here. This guy here, he has no previous connection to Jesus. He grew up in a pagan home. But here he is. And in a moment, his heart is illumined as he sees and hears the man on the cross. And he ends up praising God in front of all these people and saying something true about Jesus. Why does that get me excited? Because this man is so close to salvation. He is so close to salvation right now. In fact, I think he may well have come to faith. How else does Luke get his story? Dear friend, maybe that's where you're at on this Palm Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. But Pastor Joel, I don't understand much about Jesus or the Bible, how man could be God. I don't get how if he is God, he could allow the headlines I see on the news, Pastor Joel. But I will say, Pastor Joel, there is something about that man on the middle cross. He's a good man. He's innocent. And his death makes me want to praise God. Oh, friend, that's where you're at. You are on the path to paradise. The man on the middle cross, he's saying you can come. So like this crowd, I would encourage you to beat your breast. What is that about? It's a sign of sorrow, of a conscience moved by the cross that says, hmm, I'm not going to feel sorry for Jesus. That's not what he wants. I'm going to be sorry for the sin in my life that his cross came and cured. I'm sorry. We need to acknowledge our conscience when we do wrong. J.C. Ryle says, Great indeed is the power of conscience. He who desires inner peace must be careful not to quarrel with his conscience. Let him rather use it well. Guard it jealously. Listen to what it is saying and view it as a friend. Above all, let him pray daily that his conscience may be daily enlightened by the Holy Spirit and cleansed by the blood of Christ. We see that in a Jewish crowd overwhelmed by Christ's shocking death, his shocking death on the cross. And many of them will go from beating breasts to beating hearts in a matter of weeks on the day of Pentecost. Hearts made alive, illumined, when Peter preaches a sermon weeks from now, and they come to realize that Jesus went to the cross for their sins, and he was raised just as the Old Testament had promised. Peter says in Acts 2, Let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And he calls 3,000 people to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. Though Peter is actually preaching to a whole lot of people who are not a part of this crowd at the cross. Those are people who come from all over the world, Jews who've come. Yet, he lays the blame at their feet. You murdered Christ. Wait a minute. Peter suggesting they were there, as were you and I. 
the old uh, Hebrew Negro spiritual goes, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And it asks that question again and again. Now the writer of that spiritual and the audience couldn't have been there. But the song asks you to recognize that actually you were there. We all were. Because Jesus took your place, as we just quoted from 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus took your sin, and Jesus took God's holy wrath that you deserved. And when you take in that mystery, friends, sometimes it ought to cause you to tremble, tremble, tremble. we got to keep moving here. So if we read of some of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who also are standing off at a distance, he records this because they're the later witnesses to both the death and to the resurrection of Jesus. Luke is going to write the follow-up, Acts. This is where he's getting his story from. But it is actually a sorry moment when Luke records this. Where are Jesus' disciples? Where's Mr. Peter? I'll stand with you to the death. I get this. I get Peter. I find myself afraid at times to let people know I'm with Jesus. Our conversation moves in a spiritual direction, and then I suddenly I'll get something in my throat, and i got to take a drink. And, right? I get afraid to share my faith, especially in a culture right now where Jesus and his teachings are getting less and less popular. Things are not looking good right now in America. It's a dark time, like Luke 23. But then we get a surprise disciple, our final point, a surprise disciple. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him at a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. You know, things were not looking good for the Jesus movement. But then suddenly in the last place that you would expect, a surprise disciple shows up. Joseph, a member of the very council that had just condemned Jesus to die. Now, apparently he was not present for this because it was a unanimous decision. Was he afraid to show? Where has Joseph been all this time? We don't know. But J.C. Ryle notes wonderfully, <laughs> friends, here's good news. God has folks, his people everywhere. There are 7,000 out there who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Up pops a fellow who has both the means and the political power to give Jesus what he needs now, a proper burial, <laughs> right when he's needed. I find this so encouraging. Joseph is a good and righteous man who is looking for the kingdom of God full stop. If I'm looking for the kingdom of God, the last place I'm going to look is a dead body that just got cursed by God. <laughs> the kingdom of God, Joseph, you really think it's somehow connected to this dead body. Do you find this remarkable? He's been a secret disciple all this time. And now he's ready to risk everything 
coming out in public as a follower of that guy who just got crucified. He's doing what even Jesus' closest disciples wouldn't dare to do. He's risking his career. He could offend Pilate, the Roman governor, by going and asking for a condemned criminal's body. I mean, the humiliation wasn't over. They left him on the cross. <laughs> uh, Pilate, uh, I want to ask you something, you know, uh, that Jesus guy. Would you mind? What? Hey, get over here, Joe. <laughs> I'm so glad you showed up. You see, I really didn't want him to go to the cross either, you know, and I'm really afraid that I might get a bad rep for this. I don't want folks in all history knowing that, you know, I was the guy who crucified that guy. So if you could give him a burial of a king, go to it. I'll be known for that the rest of my life. And Pilate gives him the okay. I think he was encouraged in that. And he gives Jesus a rich man's funeral. Anybody know how much funerals cost today? I do. And Joseph's doing more. Amazingly. And I know that the other amazing thing is Joseph thinks this story ends at Luke 23. He doesn't know there's a Luke 24. Beloved, this is nuts what he's doing, the secret disciple. But Joseph says, I'm going to make it clear that I am his disciple. I was unwilling in my life, but now in my, his death, I'm going to honor Jesus. Do you want to honor Jesus with your life? God is at work in his life, and God can be at work in your life. You don't have to be a secret disciple. It's amazing because God uses this man to begin to reverse the curse. It's at this moment the curse begins to be reversed. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, where God's suffering servant was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Joseph will wrap Jesus' body in linen, expensive linen, and he places him in what's a grand tomb. The glory of Jesus, do you see? It is suddenly beginning to shine forth, even in his burial. Friends, we need weekly reminders that Jesus was buried, that he really remained under the power of death for a time. Why? Because we all have loved ones who have died. Who comes to your mind right now? Who you're missing? There's a family in Nashville that will watch a casket closed today. That's hard, isn't it? But when they lower the body into the ground, <laughs> that's when the separation becomes real. We need to know that Jesus died and was buried because that changes everything for us. It gives us hope. Zacharias Ursinus, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, writes, the reason Christ was buried was, listen to this, that we might not be terrified in view of the grave, but might know that he has sanctified our graves by his own burial, so that they are no longer graves to us, but chambers and resting places in which we may quietly and peacefully repose until we are raised to life again. <laughs> Who else but the Christian can talk about a cold, dark grave like that? For us, they're comfy bedchambers for our bodies to be made holy by Jesus. Anybody want to give an amen to Jesus? Anybody? Amen. 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 Friends, we need to close, I know. Verse 54, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. 
The women who had come from him to him with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Yeah, I had a fourth point, Sabbath delay. But if you claim more than three good points in a sermon, nobody will believe you. So you can't fool anyone. So just a couple comments on this. The women, they don't have time to care for the body because the Sabbath. So they need to come back. They're going to need to come back on the first day of the week. That might be important. You may want to come to church next Sunday. You may even want to bring a friend. I'll leave you with that. Also, in closing, this is the last time you find a seventh day, Saturday Sabbath, being observed by believers. If you hear arguments about Constantine making us worship on Sunday, they're wrong. (laughs) Here's Luke's point. There's a sinless man who did what the first man, Adam, never did. Jesus has entered into his rest after completing his work. It may just be that there's a new hope in human history. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this, your word. And this was a hard text, and it's been a hard week to think about this text. But Lord, I thank you that in one week we will be celebrating what we will be rejoicing over for all of human history. Next week we know that the Son of God will be raised from the dead. And for those who put their hope and trust in Jesus, they too, we too, will be raised from death to life. We ask and pray that you will comfort us with this hope. We ask that, Father, you'll continue to work in our lives. And, Father, if we've never accepted Jesus, if we're like that Roman centurion, right now we come to you, confessing our sins, beating our breast. Look to your Son, and we ask that you'll freely forgive us all our sins because of what Jesus did, and grant that we may put our hope and trust in him as you give us your Holy Spirit, that we may obey your will all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.